Lord, what a wonderful way to just transition here as we sing holy, 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 because you are a holy God and we owe all to you. Lord, may everything that we do today and going forward from here be honoring and praising to you that your breath in our lungs would bring the message of salvation to the world that needs to hear it. So, Lord, we just commit our time to you now. We just pray that you would uh, just hide all distractions from our minds, that you would speak to us. It's your words, Lord. May you uh, speak to us the message that we each need to hear. And, Lord, may this impact our lives, that we would go forward and be ambassadors for you. So we just lift up our time to you now. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I always like to open up with a fun story or something. And I was trying to think, what fun story could I relate to today's message? And given the fact that we just passed Valentine's Day, the rodeo is about to start, spring and Easter are coming up, I figured I'd better find a story about a Christian cowboy who's in love, about to propose to his cowgirl on Easter weekend. Fortunately for you, I did not find such a story. Uh, I don't know that that would have worked out, but I think there's probably a Hallmark movie about it. So uh, Hallmark Channel might have something for me. But rather than jumping into stories, let's jump into today's text, because this is a rich text, and it's the Word of God, and it's the best that we could read. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, and we're going to read verses 44 to 49, and that's going to be the center of our text. And this is a well-known passage. It's a passage I'm sure many of you have read many, many times. We've studied it many times. It's probably been the topic of many an Easter sermon. But I want us to take a look at it, maybe in a new way for you today. I want us to look at the text because we're looking at the crucifixion. But I want us to look at it in the light of the love of God in the cross. And let's see if we can see the love of God in the cross. So let's just start by reading this wonderful passage. Luke 23, verses 44 to 49. It was now about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw all that had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. I want us to go through these verses. And I do want us to take a look at the love of God in the cross. But before we do that, I want us to get the feeling for what's happening in these verses. So I want us to go through them individually. Let's take a look at the verses. And then let's circle back and see the love of God throughout that story and how it's woven in. And to make it easier for you, as we go through the verses, I just want you to think of the word actions. You just have to remember one word here, actions. And we're going to come back to that several times today. Because in these verses, we're going to see God's actions. We're going to see Jesus' actions. We're going to see the Roman centurion's actions. We're going to see the crowd's actions. And we're going to see Jesus' acquaintances' actions. And so let's just start looking at these verses. And let's take a look at the actions that we see. So starting at verse 44... The scripture actually tells us first, the first thing it tells us before we get into actions is it tells us about the timing of these events. And if you look at your your version of the Bible, your translation may say, some will say it was noon, some will say it was the the sixth hour, some say it was the sixth to the ninth hour, um, 
to make it easy for us to understand in our terms today, it was noon to 3 p.m. The events that we're reading here took place between noon and 3 p.m. And we have to remember, though, this is the end of the crucifixion story. In the hours leading up to this, think about all that Jesus had gone through. He had already been falsely accused and convicted. He'd been whipped. He'd been beaten. He'd had a crown of thorns put on his head. He'd been mocked. He'd been spit upon. He'd been nailed to a cross. All this took place in the hours leading up to this passage. And I would say you could probably condense that whole section if you thought about those hours ahead. You would say in those hours, Jesus faced man's wrath. But in this section, in these next three hours, Jesus is going to face God's wrath. And that is something. And so let's look again at verse 44. Because it's going to tell us two things that I think we could call God's actions here. We're going to see a darkness that came over the land. And we're going to see that the temple curtain or veil was torn in two. And if you look in the book of uh, Matthew, there's actually a third item that takes place. It mentions there's also an earthquake, a great earthquake that takes place at this time. So let's first look in verse 44. And it tells us that darkness covered the whole land. Now, we can read this in Scripture, and we know it's true because it's in Scripture. But we also have verification of this in non-biblical sources. Many of you, or some of you remember Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum. He's a leading author in Messianic theology. He's actually spoken here at First Colony Bible Chapel. He did a whole weekend seminar for us here several years back. And he quotes three different sources that give us verification or validation that this darkness... Not only is it valid from what's in the Bible, but it also shows that this wasn't something, this wasn't a darkness that was contained to just the cross at Calvary. And it wasn't just in Jerusalem. It says, if you read your scripture, it covers the land. And I think we could probably extrapolate that to say it meant the world. Listen to the, the, uh, the three sources that Dr. Fruchtenbaum quoted. He quotes two sources from Egypt. First, he quotes a, um, a Greek scientist whose name is, uh, I'm going to try to pronounce it, Dionysius. And hopefully that's right. And he recorded about this darkness at that same time, and he was writing from uh, Heliopolis, which is a city in Egypt, which ironically is known as the city of the sun. And so for a city that worships the sun to have experienced a darkness in the middle of the day would certainly be something that they would have taken notice of and written about. He also quotes another uh, Greek scientist in Egypt whose name was Diogenes. And listen to what he wrote. This is what he actually what he wrote about this. He said there was a solar darkness of such like that either the deity himself suffered at that moment or sympathized with one who did. He probably never realized how close he was to actually the actual truth on that. But then Dr. Fruitman, and if you think about where Egypt is, now put this in context, you've got Israel, you've got uh, Israel and Jerusalem, and you go south, and that's when you get down to Egypt. But now he quotes another source. He quotes a Roman scientist named Phlegon who's up in Turkey. He's north of Israel at this point. So we know when it says the land, we know it at least Egypt to Turkey. And I, like I said, I, I think we could reasonably extrapolate this, this was a darkness that covered all the world. This is what this Roman Phlegon wrote. He said, There was a great and remarkable eclipse of the sun above any that had ever happened before. At the sixth hour, the day was turned into darkness and the night of the stars which are in heaven. There was also a great earthquake in Bithynia, which overthrew many of the houses. <laughs> Isn't it amazing when uh, you get other sources outside the Bible that just totally verify everything Scripture tells us? 
Uh, just another verification for us so we can put our total trust in Scripture. But if you noticed in that sentence uh, that, that Roman uh, man, Phlegon, he quoted this as a great solar eclipse. And a lot of people today will try to make that, that uh, argument that this was nothing more than a solar eclipse happens. They happen all the time, and that's all this really was. But I'm going to tell you that's impossible. It could not have been a solar eclipse at that. And I'm going to try to point this out. And I'm actually, I've asked the, the Hudson family if I could use them as an example. And so I learned last week, by the way, that these microphones actually make it up all the way down the aisles. Uh, so, um, you know, if I see somebody nodding, we no, no. So let's do this. Let's call Alan. The, Alan's going to be the sun. All right. And Molly is going to be the earth. And Kyle's going to be the moon. Okay. So now in a full moon, the moon, we're going to move Kyle. Kyle is behind the earth, right? So in a full moon, there's nothing blocking it. You see the full shining effect of the, of the moon. There's nothing in between to block it. In an eclipse, Kyle's going to come over here. And in an eclipse, the moon passes between the sun and the earth which obviously then blocks the light, right? Everybody gets that? John says he shouldn't do public math. I probably shouldn't be doing public science. <laughs> but what we know from Scripture is that Passover always took place at a full moon. So, Kyle, you're a full moon. Where are you going to be? Exactly. He's a smart guy. He's going to be behind the earth. So is there any way that a solar eclipse, a natural solar eclipse, could have been the cause of this darkness? No, there's nothing between. The moon is behind the earth at this point because Passover is always at a full moon. Thank you. <laughs> Hopefully that helps you understand. If you hear somebody say it's a solar eclipse, it wasn't just a natural solar eclipse. This, was, this darkness that God brought upon was darkness from God himself, and he brought this. And I think what we can uh, take from this is that God usually, he has used, uh, how do I put this? I usually think of, God, and I think in the terms of light. Normally we think of God and we think of light. But there are several times that God does associate with darkness. And it's usually along with his judgment. For example, in Genesis uh, 15, it uh, tells us that there was terror and great darkness that fell upon Abraham. Now this one wasn't actually judgment because Abraham actually got the Abrahamic covenant right after this. But God had used that darkness. But think of the plagues in Egypt. Go to Exodus 10. What was one of the plagues of Egypt? Darkness, exactly. You guys know your Bible. In Joel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, in Zephaniah 1.15, it tells us that the day of the Lord is described as a day of darkness and gloom. And Joel also describes that same day in 2.10, he mentions the earth shaking and the sun and the moon being darkened. Does that sound familiar? Sounds a little bit like our passage today. And in Amos chapter 5, verse 20, it says, Will not the day of the Lord be darkness? So this darkness, like I said, is usually something that God is associated with. When God's associated with darkness, it's usually in the realm of judgment. And I think that's exactly why we have darkness here. Because in these three hours, God is about to pour his entire judgment and wrath and fury on his son. And that brought about incredible darkness. And it's an amazing thing that God brought this darkness because of what he was about to do and what Jesus was about to go through on our behalf. Now, along with that darkness, it also mentions God had another action. It says, if you look in verse 45, that the temple curtain was torn in two. 
Now, you have to remember, this temple curtain was in the temple. It separated the, the holy place from the holy of holies. In other words, God's presence was in the holy of holies. And there was a curtain there, and you couldn't pass through that. It separated man from that, from that holy of holies. And only the high priest could go in there, and that only once a year. Any other time, it would mean death. And so there was a separation that was there. And this was no ordinary curtain. This, might, this wasn't a curtain that you might find hanging in your house that you might think, oh, well, yeah, it's easy to rip a curtain. Yeah, I did that as a kid. You know, not a problem. But this curtain was 60 feet tall, and it was four inches thick. This was a huge curtain. This isn't something the man could have just walked up and torn or anything. And if we go to the book of um, Matthew, it also tells us, we get a little bit more detail. It says, it was torn from top to bottom. It wasn't that somebody walked up to him and grabbed this thing and ripped it. God did this. God ripped that curtain or that veil or that, uh, the temple in two. And we have to ask ourselves then, well, what does that mean for us? What does it mean that he did that? And I think there's two things that we can look at that it, that it tells us. One, it means that we have direct access to God. And this is just an amazing thing. That wall of partition that separated man from God, that we couldn't go to God on our own, is now gone. God took it down. God separated that and said access to himself was available to all of us. Is that not an amazing action? It just blows me away when you think about it. But it also meant that the new covenant was now complete. It rendered everything that had to do with the old temple worship. It was obsolete at that point. See, no one ever again would should, be think, should think that God dwells in temples made with human hands. Listen to what the writer says in Hebrews. In Hebrews 9:11, he says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And the writer went on in uh, Hebrews 10, 19 and 20, and says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated us for us through the veil, that is his flesh. See, the new covenant is Jesus. It's the crucifixion. It's the risen Lord and Savior is our covenant. And God has, because of what Jesus, what he was about to do and doing on the cross, that Jesus opened up that curtain. God tore the temple for us and we have access to him. And, and that's just, I mean, think about that. We can go to God anytime with our prayers and our thoughts and um, our petitions. God is available to us at any time. And that's just an amazing thing. So we've seen two actions of God in these verses. But now take a look at verse 46. Verse 46 says this. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. He quotes Psalm 31.5 here when he says that. When he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's quoting Psalm 31.5. And he's taking action. And this was actually the seventh of seven phrases that Jesus made on the cross. And I think we're going to get to see them on the screen here. Jesus had seven different things that he uh, quoted on the cross. There they are. And you can see them. Look what he said on, while he was on the cross. Luke 23. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's forgiving people. Luke 23. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He said that to the thief. In John 19, 26 and 27, he said, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He was caring for his mom on the cross. 
In Matthew 27, 46, and in Mark 15, 34, it tells us that Jesus said, My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? As God poured out his wrath on him. In John chapter 19, it tells us in verses 28 and 30, first he says, I thirst. And then he says, it is finished. And then we get to the passage that we just read here in Luke 23, 46. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And notice the change. Notice the change between the Matthew uh, numbers 4 and number 7 up there. And Matthew 27, 46 and Mark 15, 34, where he's crying out, my God, my God. Because what's happening? God's fury, his wrath, his vengeance is being poured out on Jesus. And he's been separated from the Father. But then look what happens by the time we get to Luke 23. It's done and Jesus says, Father. Once again, he's calling him Father. And it shows that there's been restoration that's made between the Father and the Son. It's a, it's a beautiful picture. And it's important to us to realize that at this point, Jesus has paid the price. He has paid the full price of sin on the cross. And it's finished. Because then look what it tells us. It tells us that Jesus breathed his last and gave up his spirit, yielded up his spirit. The price had been paid. His work on the cross was finished. And I want you to realize, no one took his life from him. He gave up his life when he wanted and how he wanted. Listen to what it says in John 10, 17 and 18. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. See, Jesus, as the world might try to tell us, they might try to tell you he was a victim on that cross. Not at all. Jesus was a conqueror on that cross. He died willingly. He died victoriously. <laughs> it, it, he, he was the victor in this. That he was not a victim. And I think it also shows us that he was dependent on the Father. It shows his submission to the Father right up to his death. And it shows his dependence on the Father as well for his resurrection. It's an incredible thing. Jesus' actions on the cross are absolutely astounding and amazing. And it's amazing that he saw, he saw death. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It was total faith in the Father. He knew that to die was to be in the Lord's presence, to be with the Father once again. And as a Christian, we can have that same outlook. When we face death in our lives, it shouldn't scare us. Listen to what it says in Philippians. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. And in 2 Corinthians 5.5, 5, it says, now the, one who, now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Well, what did he guarantee was to come? We're going to be in the presence of our Lord and Savior forever. As we saw in Romans this morning, it was confident hope. It wasn't just wishful thinking. It was confidence that this is going to take place. That we can see death, kind of like that veil. Death is nothing more than that veil that God tears in two and welcomes us into his presence. We have access to him. It reminds me of uh, what Fanny Crosby wrote in her hymn, uh, the famous hymn, Blessed Assurance, when she just wrote, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. That's what we have to hope for. When we see, read that that temple curtain was torn in two, that's what we can think of. What a foretaste of the glory divine we have because God did that for us and Jesus paid that price on the cross. So we've seen God's actions and we've seen Jesus' actions. 
Let's go to verse 47 now. Let's take a look at the centurion's actions. It tells us in verse 47, Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And if you read uh, further in Scripture in chapter in uh, Mark 15, 39, it also tells us the centurion also said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Did you catch his action? What was it? He praised God, didn't he? Which is kind of interesting coming from the centurion who had just crucified him. But think about what he'd seen and what he'd heard and what he'd experienced that would drive this reaction out. What would drive him to proclaim his innocence, to proclaim his deity, and to praise God? Well, he saw the mockings and he saw the beatings and he saw all the cruelty. He probably participated in some of that. He experienced that darkness. He experienced that earthquake. He would have heard how Jesus forgave that thief on the cross. How even a thief in his dying moments, Jesus was offering salvation and forgiveness to. He would have heard how he told John to take care of his mother and gave charge of his mother. He would have heard Jesus' prayer for forgiveness for his killers. He would have heard all of those statements we heard. And I think finally he saw how Jesus gave up his life. See, this centurion would have known. He would have been through many of these crucifixions. And he would have known that it's normally a long and drawn-out process, a painful, grueling process of death. But he saw that Jesus gave up his life and yielded up his spirit, that he was in total control. And I think that's why he praises God. And I think that's exactly what our reaction needs to be. Our reaction when we're faced with Scripture, when we hear about God's Word, when we study it, as we're walking around and we experience a glorious day like this, whatever it may be. We need to be praising God. And there's plenty of uh, examples of that. Think of the, we're in the book of Luke. Here's a few examples just from the book of Luke about praising God in these circumstances. Think of the shepherds in the Christmas story. What did it tell us in Luke 2? The shepherds returned, glorifying God and praising God for all that they had seen and heard. Or the paralytic man in Luke chapter 5. It says, immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. Or the crowd in Luke 7, when the widow's son was healed, it says, they were filled with awe and they praised God. In Luke 13, we had the crippled woman who was healed on the Sabbath. It says, he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Dan mentioned this morning the lepers. The leper in Luke 17, remember there were 10 lepers that were healed. There was one that returned. And it says, one of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. This wasn't something to be quiet about, was it? This was praise to God. And finally, in Luke 18, Bartimaeus, after receiving his sight, it says, immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw it, they also praised God. Our reaction, when we see, see things happening, and we're experiencing God, and we're in his word, and we're praying... We need to praise God, don't we? We get to come here every Sunday, but it doesn't need to be just here. We need to praise God at all times. And that's the perfect response when we're confronted with our Lord and Savior. So that was the centurions. And I would say a word for the centurion would be confident. He was absolutely confident in what he saw in his declaration that Jesus was God and was innocent. But let's take a look now in verse 48 because we want to move on and take a look at what the crowd, what was their action? It says in verse 48, all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breast. 
Now, my version calls it a spectacle, and I think that's the perfect word for this because really that's what it was. It was nothing more than a spectacle. But it tells us that the crowd left beating their breast. And that day, people would walk away when they felt contrition or sorrow. They'd walk away beating their breast because they knew something wrong had been done. I would say it was conviction in this case. that They had seen all that had taken place, and they were convicted by what they'd seen on the cross. This also reminds me of, uh, in Luke, also another example. Remember the uh, tax collector and the Pharisee? There was a Pharisee in the temple, it says, and he was trying to give himself praise through a, a flowing prayer. And, but where was the tax collector? He was off in the shadows, beating his breast, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But we've got to remember this crowd. Their reaction was to walk away, beating their breast. I think they were convicted by what they'd seen. Think about the roller coaster of emotions that really they had been through in the last week. The week earlier, they'd been the triumphal entry. They'd been waving palm branches. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were ready to make Jesus king that day, weren't they? And they would have if they could. But that wasn't God's plan. But then just a couple days later, they were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And then it tells us they were hurling insults and mocking Jesus on the cross. But I think now when they've seen it all, as they start realizing it happened, I think like the centurion, they realized what was happening there and they realized their guilt. And it says they walked away beating their breast. They felt bad about it. But it's interesting that Luke doesn't tell us any more. Scripture doesn't give us any more mention of that crowd. And my guess is that like a lot of people, they walked away, they've heard, they may be, you know, their sin, may they feel guilty about it. And they may walk away. But my guess is most of them probably walked away and forgot about it. Probably felt bad for a while, but then it slowly kind of faded from their, from their minds and they probably didn't mean anything. That was probably the majority. But I'm also guessing that there were some that that guilt seared their consciences. And I'm just guessing, I have no background for this, but I'm guessing that some of those same people that walked away beating their breast were probably some of those that were there on the Day of Atonement and were some of the first converts, that their hearts were prepared at that point to receive the Lord when they realized what had happened. It reminds me of a painting, and I think uh, Scott's going to have it up for us on the screen. There's a painting that Rembrandt did, and it's called The Three Crosses. Uh, and if you've never seen this, um, it, it really is an amazing painting. And if you look at the painting, obviously the first thing you notice is, hopefully, the middle cross. It's, it's a painting about the three crosses, and Jesus is the focal point of this painting. But if you zoom in on it, and, and this is where I'd say if you've got an iPad, uh, this is really cool. Go open up this picture and then you know, start doing this to your picture and start zooming in and see. You can see the crowd from a distance here, but start zooming in and take a look at the faces on the crowd and on the, on the Roman centurions and everything in there. And when you read these verses about how they walked away beating their breast, you're going to see the range of emotions sitting in the, in the, uh, in the people's faces in this painting. It, it truly is amazing. And then as you go out to the sides, and this one, some critics say that if you go out to the sides and look in the shadows, you'll see a picture of Rembrandt himself. Now, when I zoomed in, I, I did in the shadows on the right and on the left-hand side, I did find a small face in there. I don't know if that was Rembrandt. I couldn't tell you exactly which one it is. If anybody knows for sure, let me know. Cause, uh, but it is amazing because you do see some, uh, a couple of faces just in the, in the shadows. And they say that Rembrandt drew himself in there because he realized his own sin. And that was the position he saw himself when faced with the cross. 
And it's an amazing thing. Where do we see ourselves? Where are we in that picture? Are we the ones walking away beating our breasts? Or are we going to be like that centurion and praise God and bring Him glory? So, let's also look finally at verse 49. Because we want to see what the actions were of Jesus' acquaintances. In verse 49 it says, And all His acquaintances and the women who had followed Him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. See, they stood at a distance. We knew that they were near the cross. Remember, one of Jesus' statements was telling John to take care of his mother and his mother to be under the guidance of John. So we know that they were close enough at one point to have a conversation. But it tells us now they slowly kind of just drifted back into the distance and watched these things. And you can even imagine. I mean, this wasn't how they thought it was going to go, was it? They were expecting a kingdom to happen right there. They were expecting glory and praise and you know, fanfare and pomp and, and, and a crowning and a coronation going on. This cross wasn't what they expected. And so they, they kind of shrink back at this moment. It's an amazing thing. It reminds me of uh, Psalm 88.18. It says, uh, in that psalm it says, You have taken me, you have taken from me, friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. I think this is some of the suffering that Jesus went through on the cross. I think seeing, seeing his acquaintances and the people that were with him just slowly start backing off and, and leaving him, kind of like Job's friends. Uh, you know, he was left abandoned. I think that was probably some of that. But we do have to remember, the Bible does tell us a little bit more about these acquaintances. So we don't know here anything about the crowds, but his acquaintances, we know that later on, some of them were the faithful witnesses. They were out there spreading the gospel and telling the good news of Jesus' resurrection. They were telling them how he died, but was ro- how he rose again. And were praising God and, get- and spreading the gospel. So, We've seen God's actions. We've seen some actions of Jesus. We've seen the centurion's actions. We've seen the crowd's actions. And we've seen his acquaintance's actions. But, what about that, that premise that we started with? Did we see the love of God in that? Hopefully you saw some of the ways that God showed his love in the cross on that. If you didn't, here's a couple that I picked out. How about the fact that God sent His Son? Just the basic premise that Jesus was on that cross. Before the foundation of the world, Scripture tells us, God had this planned. This was His plan all along. Before before we ever were in existence, before we ever even sinned, God had this in His plan. And He could have made a different plan, but He didn't. So the fact that just the fact that Jesus was on that cross is an amazing testament to God's love for us. And the fact that Jesus bore God's wrath for us. He bore the wrath, the sin of the world on that cross in three hours of darkness. It wasn't because he owed a debt. He had no sin. He didn't owe anything. It was a debt that we owed and we could never pay. But he paid it for us. Listen to 1 John 4.10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In Ephesians 5, 2, it says, And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. God's love was definitely demonstrated through Jesus on the cross. And how about the fact that we already talked about? He's given us direct access to himself. He tore that temple curtain. He gave us direct access. Was that not an incredible act of love for us? What a great time we live in 
live in a time of grace and total access to God. He showed his love by completing the work of redemption. God's plan of redemption was complete. And he shows his love for that and through his son. And that God's salvation is available to any of us. It's, it's an amazing thing. How about the thief on the cross? The thief on the cross was a picture of God's love. Here's a guy who was near his death. I mean, he was on his dying moments. And yet he reached out to the Lord and asked for forgiveness. And Jesus granted that. He gave him forgiveness. That said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Is that not showing incredible love? It's amazing. And also, I think if you look and think about what we're going to see someday. Think about the nail prints on Jesus' hands. We're going to see those someday. And we're going to realize he paid that price for us. In Isaiah 49.16, it says, See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. And I think when we see that, we're going to see the nail prints in Jesus' hand. We're going to realize he did that for us. And, and when we see it face to face, I know that song says, I can only imagine what I'll be doing. I think I'm just going to be on my face flat because I'm just going to be so in awe of what God has done for me. Um, it, it's an incredible thing. It reminds me of a story, though. I'll tell you another quick story. In 1946, at the Los Alamos lab, there were tests being done. Once again, I'm doing science, and I probably shouldn't, but this is a story. <laughs> um, so at the Los Alamos lab, they were testing for, they were trying to make the atomic bomb. And they were testing how much uranium-235 you needed to take and how close you had to get it. And, and I did some reading up on this. I guess as it gets closer and it gets to that point where it, it starts reaching critical mass and that chain reaction starts, it, it kind of creates like a blue light and it gets all warm and you need to stop that chain reaction because uh, you're going to die a slow and painful death of radiation poisoning if you don't. Well, there's a story that you know, one day they were doing this and they were testing at different levels of uranium. And they got the uranium, and what they would do is they'd get them close, and then there was a screwdriver there they'd have, and they'd use the screwdriver to knock the uranium away so they didn't come in contact with it. Well, one day they got doing this experiment, and they got to the point where that chain reaction was about to start, the blue light starts coming, and they're about to reach critical mass, and the screwdriver slipped. And so now there's no way to stop the chain reaction. And it says there's a young scientist, his name was um, Louis Slotin. It says that at that moment, he reached in with his hands and pulled the uranium apart. Well, of course, in his hands, through his hands, he took on all the radiation from that uranium. It said as they, the ambulance was coming, he was telling his, his friends, he said, you guys are going to be okay, but there's no hope for me. And he was right. There was no hope for him. Nine days later, he died a painful death of, of radiation poisoning. But he saved seven people in that room that day by stopping that chain reaction. And I think it's a picture. Think of the picture of Jesus and what he took on the cross. He didn't just stop a chain reaction of radiation. He stopped the chain reaction of sin that started in the Garden of Eden. He broke the power of sin. And we can see that. When we see his hands, we're going to realize he broke the power of sin for us. Let that sink in for a second. Is that, is that amazing what God has done for us? I, uh, it, it is awe-inspiring when you think about it. So we've looked at all these actions. Hopefully you've seen the love of God in this. But let's look at one last thing. One set of actions that we ha- we're forced to look at this. And that's our own actions. What are our actions going to be having heard this? Having experienced this? 
Are we going to acknowledge God's innocence and His deity? Are we going to praise God? Do we praise Him when we have a chance to? Are we going to accept the free gift of salvation? Can we experience what the Lord has done for us and not accept that free gift of salvation? If you're here and you don't know the Lord as your Savior, God, Jesus has paid that price. God sent His Son for you to die on that cross. If you don't know that today, please come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to tell you how you can know for sure that you are saved and you know that you will be with Him. That then when that... When death happens, that veil is going to be open for you and you're going to be right in the presence of God in safety. Uh, please don't leave here without that. Are we going to be like the crowd? Are we going to hear it and say, yeah, that was a great story. We heard some, heard some fun stuff, interesting stuff. But are we going to walk away? Are we going to feel bad beating our breast but then maybe forget about it a couple days later and let it have no impact on our lives? Or are we going to be like the acquaintances? Are we going to be faithful witnesses to the Lord and tell others about what God has done for us, about the salvation He has for us? JP told us last Saturday, it was a great story at, um, at the men's breakfast. He was telling us about a friend that was uh, talking with a chaplain and it was being encouraged to, uh, I think, to share his faith. And uh, he kind of indicated he just wanted to live his life out, you know, didn't really want to have to put himself out there. And, and the chaplain uh, looked at him, I hope I'm telling this right, the chaplain told me, he said, you know what? Someone loved you enough to tell you about that salvation in Jesus Christ. We did not have the same love for somebody else to go out and tell them. What are our actions going to be today? Are we going to walk away and just feel bad? Or are we going to do something about it? Are we going to praise God and worship Him and, and take that message of glory to the world? I want to invite the music team to come on up. And I want them to lead us into a, into a song. And I'm going to read the song to us. And I want you just to, to sit back. Let me, let me just read the words and enjoy the words. <laughs> and I would tell you, God's telling us something because we actually sang the song last Sunday at the opening of the worship service. And we sang it again this morning at the beginning of the worship service. And we're singing it again now. So I think if you're not paying attention, pay attention because God's trying to tell us each of us something through this song. And reminding us of what he had. It's how deep the Father's love for us. Listen to the words once again. Be encouraged by these. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That he should give his only son. To make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one. Bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Let's take the time. Rather than praying today, let's take the time. Let's just praise God. Praise Him in a loud voice. 
Let's sing the song together and worship and praise God for all that He has done for us.